0: is clean garments for the high priest. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at the right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, "The Lord rebuke you, Satan, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick, a stick snatched from the fire?" Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The Lord said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. Then I said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him, while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave his charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says, If you will walk in my way and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of his land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite his neighbour to sit under his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. Let's just quickly pray before we get started. Lord, I want to thank you that all of us women could be here today. Thank you that we could meet in a Christian place and just share your word. Be with She explains what it means to be wearing the perfect clothes for your glory and that you open our minds to new things. Amen.
1: Well, our series um, of three talks today is called The Essential Wardrobe, and uh, hence we've got our friend here. We're doing Miley Cyrus this afternoon, so she may end up with no clothes on, but anyway, we'll see. And uh, our first talk this morning is Wearing the Perfect Clothes, Zechariah Chapter 3, so it'd be great if you could keep that text open in front of you, as I'm guessing it's probably not the most familiar text, but it's very exciting. It was Saturday morning, and I was going to a party, which was a brunch. So I ironed a shirt, put on my best jeans, and grabbed my favourite blue cardigan, the really comfy one that I'd had for ages. Well, I got there, and I instantly felt sick. There was this huge, perfect house, uh, cement rendered in a cool grey. There was uh, manicured gardens, fountains. And as I walked up the driveway, I was met by two spotless black BMWs. All the way up that driveway, I could see my reflection. (laughs) I should go home. Well, for some crazy reason, I walked in that big front door but i should have gone home everywhere i looked there was linen pants and jackets and fancy handbags and makeup and there was eyes staring at me so i escaped to the kitchen just to help out but the worst was still to come in the corner there was two immaculate women they look like they just stepped out of a country road brochure and I overheard their whispers. You're not going to believe what she's wearing. What? To the party. What? An old blue cardigan. <laughs> well, at that, at that point, I had absolutely no choice and I escaped to the bathroom. Point one in your outline women long for the perfect clothes. I think that's true of most of us. Now, there's a sense that we sort of intrinsically long to sort of have those perfect clothes, and the marketers certainly know it. They know about us that we can stand in front of a full wardrobe and we still say... I've got nothing to wear. We stand in front of a full mirror and we check every angle. How does my bum look like in these pants? Before we go to a party, we try and guess what the other women will will be wearing. And we sometimes get it wrong. And at the party, we notice what the other women are wearing. We hate being overdressed and we hate being underdressed. We just want those clothes that are just right. Now, I think it's an emotion that fairy tales and movies often tap into. So you think about Cinderella, My Fair Lady, uh, Pretty Woman, or Devil Wears Prada. You remember that one? Anne Hathaway gets uh, that job, that runway, at that sort of fancy top fashion magazine. And as soon as she walks in there, you know, that, that sort of first part of the movie, it's excruciating how everyone's relating to her. They just snob her and they mock her because she just doesn't belong. But then Nigel gives Anne a makeover. And, you know, when she walks in in that sort of new outfit and the new hair and the new everything, everyone... Is silent. You see, in the kitchen at that party, I longed to trade places with the country road women. If I'd had their clothes on that day, well, I would have really enjoyed the party. Now, there's a lot about clothing in the Bible. Point two on your outline. Now does that surprise you? If I was asked you to to sort of list off the major themes of the Bible, would you say clothing? Well it turns out that clothing is a picture which is used to explain very big truths about life. So God clothed me with skin and flesh. And he knit me together with bones and sinews, Job 10. Or, God clothes the grass of the field, Matthew 6. Or, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 13. Or, clothe yourself with compassion, Colossians 3. Or, clothe yourself with humility, 1 Peter 5. And there's actually lots more references. This sense of clothing, something that we know so well is used to explain truths about God and about life. In fact, there's something actually even bigger. When you think about the whole story of the Bible, it moves from being unclothed in the Garden of Eden to the bride with perfect clothes in Revelation 21. That is the whole story of the Bible. In some ways, if someone said, what's it about? From nakedness, unclothed, shame, to the perfect clothes, Revelation 21. And so this morning I want to give you fashion tips from the Bible. Now you would be glad to know that <laughs> it's not exactly sort of runway magazine stuff. Fashion tips from the Bible, actually what the Bible wants us to know, and that is this, what does the picture of clothing teach us about life? And what are the clothes that God wants us to wear? And we're going to start with a fairly unusual place Zechariah chapter 3. Now, Zechariah is the second last book of the Old Testament, written about 520 BC, and it's just after God's people have come back from exile. And it is a strange book of pictures. You know, there's a a flying scroll, sort of like Harry Potter. There's a a woman in a basket. There's two women with wings of a stork. Sort of crazy. And chapter 3 uses this picture of clothing, but it has a very cold start, verse 1. Verse 1, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So there's three main characters. There is Joshua the high priest... There is the angel of the Lord representing God and there is Satan standing to accuse Joshua. Why? Why is Satan pointing his finger at Joshua? Verse 3. Now Joshua was standing in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Joshua has filthy clothes there and Satan stands to accuse. Now, in some ways, it's a shock because the high priest represents God to the people. And so you read that he's meant to have special clothes. In in Exodus 28, he wears fine linen, gold and blue with purple and scarlet yarn, sacred garments of dignity and honor. You, You see the high priest and he's meant to look really fancy because he represents God to the people. And yet, it's not a shock because the high priest represents the people to God. And so symbolically, he he has sinful clothes, filthy clothes. He is wearing the sin of God's people. And that is why Satan stands to accuse. He says, You know, Joshua, don't you know? You're the high priest, don't you know God's character? He is pure and blameless. He's, His eyes are too pure to look on evil. He lives in unapproachable light. You know that. You're the high priest. So how dare you stand in his presence in filthy clothes? How dare you? He stands to accuse and he's totally got a good argument. You have no right to be filthy in God's presence. How can he stand there in God's presence? Well, at the party, when I escaped to the bathroom, I turned on the light. And instantly, you know those sort of, those super, super strong light, boom, they went on. And I looked down and I could see what the other women could see. You know, I'm looking at my, my top and I'm suddenly seeing every sort of little stain and every little blemish and those little sort of fluff balls. And that powerful light showed up every little blemish. Every little stain. And that is nothing compared to standing in God's presence. You know, His light shines through our entire life, every day of our life, every moment of our life, and it shines out and shows up every little stain, every little blemish, every little secret. All of us have secrets. A lifetime, it doesn't matter how long you live in this life, all of us have terrible secrets, really the things that we might not have done but the things we've thought and so Satan can accuse. He sees all of that and he knows all that and Isaiah says all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous acts, that is our very best we have, are like... Filthy rags. Whoa, like we're saying, my very best that I could offer God. Isaiah says, your righteous acts, they're like filthy rags, like high priest Joshua. So if God is pure and blameless, as we meet here to sort of, you know, celebrate him today, if he is God, if he is pure and blameless, how can any of us be safe with God? Shouldn't we be scared of God? Aren't all of us way underdressed? Well, verse 2 is a great relief. Verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man, Joshua, a burning stick snatched from the fire? Verse 4, the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, look at this, see I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. What happens? Satan stands to accuse but then God himself removes the filthy clothes and he replaces it with? Beautiful clothes, perfect clothes. Where is Satan now? Well, he's silent. He's got nothing to say. If Joshua now has perfect clothes on, if God has taken away Joshua's sin, Satan has nothing to say. Well, imagine if that was our story. If you could just take your sin, your your secrets, all that sort of stuff and just... Throw it away like an old shirt. That seems like a fairy tale, like the world of Devil Wears Prada. Except for verse 8, which says this. Listen, high priest Joshua. You and your associates seated before you because you are men symbolic of things to come You see, the story of Joshua is our story. The story of Joshua is really a symbol or a clue that God's vast a bigger plan is to clothe his people. So point three on your outline. Now this vast, massive, amazing plan of God to clothe his people has many clues throughout the Bible. And so when you reckon, when you think about God is going to clothe his people, where is the very first clue that we get? Genesis. Exactly, it's Genesis. In fact, it's Genesis 3, so early in the story. You see, Adam and Eve sin against God, and then their eyes are opened and they go, whoops, we're, we're, we're naked, not just naked you know, physically, but naked emotionally, holistically, whoa, and they're scared of God. And so... What do Adam and Eve do? Sewing. It says they sew fig leaves together. But they still can't hide. And so what does God do? The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. Their attempt at clothing doesn't work. God himself does the sewing. Genesis 3, verse 21 is the first clue that God will clothe his people. And here in Zechariah, we get lots more clues. In verse 8, at the end, it says, I'm going to bring my servant the branch. It's sort of strange, like, who's this branch? But in uh, chapter 6, verse 11, we find out the branch is the high priest who is also the king. So it's quite an incredible person that somehow high priest and king all bundled together. And then in verse 9, and I love this one, have a look at verse 9b, it says, God will remove sin in a single day. Chapter 12, it says that blood will be shed. And then strangely it says a a fountain will open up That will wash away sin. And it's sort of strange. There's a branch. Then there's um, God's going to somehow remove sin in a single day. Then there's this fountain and blood. I mean, it is strange. You think about, you know, if you head down to Woolies to the supermarket and uh, you go to the, the sort of laundry cleaning aisle and you see a new product. And if you look at it carefully, it says, washes the filthiest clothes clean." And, you know, one of my sons used to play rugby and I think, fantastic, look at the price tag. But then I look closely at it and it says, new Omo with blood. Would you buy it? Is that something that would wash the filthiest clothes clean? Blood. Well, these strange Old Testament clues only makes sense when we get to the New Testament because there we meet the man who washed our filthy clothes. Revelation 7 verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. They were standing in front of the Lamb, the throne, and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. It's, it's meant to conjure up, it's really like the, 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 um, the scene in Zechariah, that is the, the throne, the presence of God, and there's these people standing there, but now they're in white robes, not filthy clothes like Joshua. And then one of the elders in verse 13 asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Like How, how, did, they, how did they get here? I mean, this is great crowd of people standing in front of the throne and the lamb. Shouldn't they be scared? But I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are those, this is the white robes, who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white, how? In the blood of the lamb. The only way someone can have white robes, that is perfect clothes, that is appropriate clothing in the presence of God, is to be washed in the blood of the lamb. You see, Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of all God's plan. He's he's the thing. He's, He's what the Bible's all about. He is the lamb. He is the branch. He is the king. He is the high priest. He is the fountain. All those incredible pictures in the Old Testament are all ultimately Jesus. Because on the cross, when he died, Jesus Christ wore our filthy clothes. And he was accused by Satan for all our sin. At that point on the cross, Satan can say, Jesus, you need to die. You need to face the judgment of God because, like Joshua, you're in filthy clothes Symbolically, all our sin. And so he cries out, my God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God has to forsake someone that is wearing sin. All our sin. On the cross, Jesus Christ wore our filthy clothes. But on the cross, Jesus also washed our filthy clothes. Three days later, when he rose from the dead, the washing cycle was finished. So you go into a laundry and there's this huge, whopping big washing machine. And you sort of open up the, you know, the big lid and you just pour in your lifetime of sin. And it takes ages, like every bit of garbage every thought, all the things you don't even remember that you thought and did, your lifetime of sin into that machine. And then you pour in Jesus' blood. And you close the lid. And it goes, you know, so like a big, fat, big washing machine. And it takes ages. But three days later, the washing cycle finishes. And you open up the lid and you look inside and your sin is completely gone. That's what beautiful uh, hymn writers um, try and sort of capture. This one which says, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress. Helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin to you I cry. Wash me, Saviour. Or, I die. God's plan is to clothe his people. It is only, you know, the blood of Jesus. If Jesus hadn't died, none of us would be safe in God's presence. It couldn't be here today. And so let's have a think about point four on our, li- uh, on our outline, wearing the perfect clothes. See, this morning, as you you sort of sit here and you think about your Christian life and how you feel, are you underdressed? Should you be feeling, it's just sort of canvas, you know, your last week or yesterday, should you be feeling even a bit scared of God when we think about our lives? Well, I think the answer and the incredible comfort and encouragement from this, this passage in Zechariah is that we should not be feeling even a tiny bit scared. Absolutely nothing, no matter what rubbish might be in our past. Because look how Zechariah 3 finishes. Verse 10. After this incredible story of the filthy clothes and God replaces them, it says, in that day, this day when God removes sin, in that day each of you will invite your neighbour to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord almighty. Now it's a bit strange, you know, you're sitting there with your neighbor under a vine and fig tree, but it just means going down to cocoa bean and you know ordering a really nice hot chocolate and getting those expensive sort of platters of things. It just means sitting with a friend and having a coffee. A hot chocolate just safe, like nothing to worry about. That is how Zechariah. So, you know, the beginning of Zechariah 3 starts with Satan, you would have to say the scariest advocate we have, like the scariest enemy we have pointing his finger at Joshua, by the end, having a coffee down at Cocoa Bean. That is the change. When God removes those filthy clothes, there is nothing that you then need to be scared of. Now, I think it's hard to believe how safe we are. I mean, we might say, yeah, yeah, Jesus has died for me, it's all good. Now, he's, he's died for my sin, but actually how we experience that and live that out think it's hard to actually really believe it, that we are completely free from accusation. You see, I can say to you that I am pure and blameless. You think, come on, like, even knowing me a little bit, like, like, no, but that is how God sees me, as pure and blameless. Do I sin? yeah. But can Satan accuse me? No. (laughs) Jesus, he's, He's already accused Jesus for my sin, so he can't accuse me again. Do you sin? Yep. I don't know you, but I'm going to say yep, yep, yep. Absolutely, you sin, right? But can Satan accuse you? Not if you're a Christian. He can't double dip. He can't go, I'm just going to accuse Jesus on the cross, and then I'm going to accuse you too. You see, when you realise that Jesus wore our sin, it has been dealt with. It is finished, is what Jesus said. Jesus, uh, Satan cannot accuse us for our sin, but the reality is that Satan plays guilt games with us. He has no more power. He cannot accuse us for our sin, but he can muck around with our guilt. So his sin. And we feel guilty as we should, but that we cannot believe God has washed our sin away. We sort of feel Satan's pointing finger. Some of us feel that acutely because of things in our past. So we feel Satan's finger or we feel someone else's finger or our own finger. We just feel this sense of guilt and shame for stuff that we cannot change. And so we vainly try to wash sin away ourselves, either by trying to sort of make up for our mistakes, I can't change that so I'll do better now, or by somehow bullying ourselves. You know, Satan's game is to leave us in guilt. How do you silence Satan? How do you sort of stop that voice in your head that keeps reminding you that instead of looking at the cross and says, wow, he's done it, keeps looking at your failures, maybe one particular event? Well, a hymn writer says it like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upwards I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him... And pardon me. No matter what our secrets are, little or big, keep looking at Jesus and you realize you are free. We are completely free from accusation. And secondly, we can relate to God with absolute confidence. You know, I've got a friend called Isabel and we used to, uh, when we were sort of uni days or finishing uni, we used to flat together. And, uh, you know, I just remember those days. I didn't have those sort of fancy slipper things you have here. But, um, you know, you're just hanging out in your jammies. You know those late night conversations which are just brilliant and just everything sort of spills out. And, you know, I'd say she's my, my best sort of girlfriend. Like I can sort of pretty much tell her anything. But when she visits my house... I feel irrationally scared. You know, I rush around sort of a bit of vacuuming and cleaning, especially the bathroom. And the reason for that is, well, it's sort of a silly fear, but it's sort of a real fear because Isabel is a clean freak. I mean, she would describe herself that way. Even She's got three teenagers too, so, you know, you can't always pull it off. But her, one of her daughters in primary school wants to a picture of the family and... Um, She drew a picture, you know, one of her her sisters, and she put underneath the picture of her sister, cute, and then there was a picture of her mum, and underneath her mum she wrote, clean. (laughs) Anyway, I don't need to say any more, but the point is this. Isabel is such a good friend, but I still don't relate to her with absolute confidence. That is true. You think about the absolute best relationship you had, there are still little things where I'm not going to quite say that to my husband or you know, we don't completely relate with absolute confidence. Now, I think you have to say that no human relationship is ever completely safe. That is there is always things that we do for love. In every relationship, even if you didn't articulate, then there's sort of, you know, my husband James, I mean, I'm very blessed to have him as my husband, but there's still little ways we relate and things that I don't tell him and things, and, you know, things I do. Be... That is true of every relationship that you have. And I think we feel that there's a sense, you know, we're always sort of craving something a bit more, just a, just a sense that we're completely safe. But Zechariah would say to us, there is one relationship That is completely safe. The one who should be most unapproachable is actually the most approachable. The one that we should fear most, we now fear least. Isn't that incredible? I mean, that is what Jesus did when he died for us. We should be scared of God, but now he's our Father. We never have to stress about old blue cardigans with God or how big our bottom is. There, there is nothing we have to say or do or wear. Nothing. I mean, it's a terrible thing when sometimes people come into our church fellowships and they have a sense that somehow there's things that you do have to do. But the message of the gospel of grace is that God has done it all and there is absolutely nothing... We have to say or do or wear. He did it. We can relate to God with absolute confidence. You know, standing in the kitchen that day, I felt profoundly underdressed. I felt unsafe. I, I, wished, I, I wished I could trade places with the country road women. If only we could see life from God's perspective. See, what did he see that day? Is he seeing me there in the kitchen just dying, sort of in shame? What did God see that day? He saw I was wearing the perfect clothes. Satan cannot accuse me. I might have felt out of whack with every other woman at that party, but the one I should fear, Satan, could not accuse me. And therefore I am pure and blameless. And I am safe for eternity. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for how rich your word is. We thank you for this wonderful passage of Zechariah, which so powerfully shows us what it is uh, to be in your presence in sin and to have Satan accuse us, and then to be in your presence safe because of your son and his blood for us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that that truth, we wouldn't just know it in our, in our, our heads, but deep in our hearts. For those of us who carry heavy burdens of things of the past, that we would know Jesus died for that and that Satan cannot accuse us any longer. For those of us, just the little things of life, the ways we treat people around us, thank you that you forgive us and that because of Jesus dying, it is completely finished. Please let us live with that confidence and please, in the way we treat each other, help us not to judge but to always be people who uh, draw each other back to your son. It is finished. Amen.